0: Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, John chapter nine, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. Would invite you to stand to your feet as we read the Word of God together. John chapter nine, beginning in verse one. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No. But he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. (laughs) So they said to him, And how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we remember uh, that your word is before us. It is everlasting. It is infallible, It is inerrant in the original autographs. It is authoritative. Indeed, it is the highest authority in our lives. And so we uh, hold these things close to our hearts today as we um, study the word of God together. We recognize that in each narrative in this gospel, there's something for us, something to take away, a life lesson, a principle, all pointing to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask that you'd give me the ability to do that, to do as the great British pastor once said, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, to preach a text and make make a beeline to the cross. May we do that today. May your people be encouraged and may the lost, hear the gospel, and respond favorably to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was a balmy July evening. The smell of pulled pork was in the air and garlic fries, and some of you already know where I was at with my family, one of my all-time favorite places to spend an evening, and that is Safeco Field. And for some reason, in the middle of the game, I felt compelled to do as thousands of other people were doing. I felt compelled to look at my smartphone, to check my email, to check some other scores of other ball games I was interested in. And as I was really consumed with looking at the scores and checking my email, a loud eruption went on around me. And the the crowd was going crazy. They were standing up as I was still seated. And I looked up on the jumbotron, and between what I saw and what I heard, I realized that the Mariners had turned a triple play. Now, those of you who are baseball fans know this. I may never see another triple play as long as I live. And I have a confession to make. I can feel right now the hair on my arms are standing on end. I am not joking. Gary, is, he's with me. He knows it is very rare. When I played baseball, my buddies and I, me at second, John Rohr at third, Steve Robbins at first, we turned a double, a triple play one time. And we knew it would never happen again. When I was at the Mariner game, I missed the triple play. I was looking at my smartphone. Wow. In many respects, you can say, Steele, you really missed the boat. You just missed the boat. And I, I would argue that there are many ways that we miss the boat in our lives. We miss a beautiful sunset. We miss one or many of our children's games, and we'll never get those back. We miss the birth of one or more of our children. Gentlemen, we miss an anniversary. We miss a birthday. We miss a graduation ad infinitum ad nauseam. We miss the boat in so many ways. I would say this, it's one thing to miss a triple play at a baseball game or even to miss a special event of a loved one. However, it is a totally different matter when we, the people of God, miss the works of Almighty God. And since all of God's works are good and noble and true and beautiful, it would follow that to miss the works of God is to miss the glory of God. And I think we do it all the time. Well, the title of the message this morning, as Pastor Ken already noted, is Missing the Boat failing to see and savor the glory of God. And I wonder, as I was preparing this message over the course of the last several days, I wonder how many people this morning at Christ Fellowship have turned a blind eye to the works of Almighty God. I wonder how many people here today have set their sights on fame or set their sights on fortune But they have, in the process, missed out on the glory of God. I wonder how many people today at Christ Fellowship have fixated their attention on temporary pleasures, but have failed to fix their gaze on the works of God, which I have already argued is to fail to see and savor the glory of God. And so in light of those realities, I want to pose a question this morning. And the answer to this question is highly significant. What you do with the answer to this question, I believe, has not only life-shaping implications, but the answer that we will take the next several minutes to unpack has eternal implications and eternal consequences. Here's the question. Exactly where is the glory of God displayed. I can actually see it in some of your eyes this morning. I'm very encouraged by it. I'm asking, where is the gl- the glory of God displayed because I don't want to miss it. I don't ever want to miss it. As we read this passage, as we study this passage in John chapter 9 verses 1 to 12, I want to make this case that the glory of God is displayed in two primary ways. The first is this, and it may surprise you, God's glory is displayed, and I want to stop. Several of you have come to me and you say, I love trying to fill in the blanks before you get there. How many of you do that? And you haven't admitted it yet? Okay, good. Wow. How many of you didn't raise your hand a minute ago, but you really do it? I would argue... Oh, thank you. We have one honest man. I will argue this. I don't think that one person can come up with the answer today. It may surprise you. Number one, the first primary way that God displays His glory is in the mundane he displays His glory in the mundane. You say, what's the mundane? The mundane is the everyday, ordinary, you might even say boring, tedious, humdrum, typical kinds of things. That's the first primary way that God displays His glory. And in order for you to see that, in order for you to see that God The triune God displays His glory in the mundane. I want to highlight three very important observations. Read with me verses 1 to 3. As he or Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Notice the first observation. That is this. Jesus, in these few words, dismantles, he dismantles the worldview of his disciples. You see, the disciples here make an assumption. And we make assumptions everywhere every day of our lives. They make the assumption that the man before him who was blind was either being punished for his sin or he was, being, he was paying back for the sin of his parents. And so the disciples asked Jesus, who was it? The blind man? Did he sin? So did you inflict him with blindness or was it his parents that sinned? And he's paying the price of that sin. I would say this, that Many people, especially in our generation, and especially in America, make a similar assumption. I actually hear this all the time. Much of this thinking, which is very similar to that of the disciples, is rooted in an Eastern worldview. May I be more explicit much of what is happening here in the disciples' worldview, and I would say that it lasts only for a short while because, again, Jesus dismantles this worldview, this is a worldview that has pagan origins. And it appears that they are at least sympathetic to the notion of karma. How many of you are familiar with karma? 25 years ago, if I were to ask that question, most Americans would have had a strange look on their face. But because of the rise of of Buddhism and Hinduism and Eastern monism and Eastern religion, the teaching of karma has been imported into the United States of America. I would say it's even been, been imported into the Christian worldview. I talk to Christians all the time who use... And utilize the word karma. Now, obviously and admittedly, oftentimes it is tongue in cheek or it's mere joking, but as we'll soon discover, karma is nothing to joke about. For karma is the idea of cause and effect. And in this scheme, the motivation and the action of the individual influences the future. Of that individual. That is to say, karma teaches that the sins of a person will influence that person in the future. In other words, you pay for your sin, or your mother and father may commit a sin and then you're going to pay for their sin. And I'm going to argue this morning that karma, first of all, is an unbiblical belief. I want to encourage you, if you use the word, if it has been imported into your Vocabulary into your worldview, my encouragement today is that you export it immediately. Because not only is karma unbiblical, I'm going to argue that karma is actually diabolical and hurtful to people. The most diabolical aspect of karma is this. Walter Martin says... The accumulated weight of one's bad actions, which can only be atoned for through personal and individual good actions during a succession of lives. And so think about the implications of this. If I commit a series of sins, and I believe in karma, and I atone for those sins through acts of personal goodness, that is, my sins can be blotted out because I do some good deeds, then this renders the doctrine of the atonement in Scripture null and void. The notion of karma, you see, is at odds with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, in one swift sentence, he dismantles the worldview of these disciples. Now, did the disciples believe in karma? I would say no, absolutely not. But somehow somewhere along the way, that worldview was imported into their vocabulary like it has been for many of us. And so Jesus wants these disciples to see something entirely different about the man who was born blind. And we've already read it together twice, and I hope you find it encouraging and shocking at the same time. For the man's blindness, you see, had nothing to do with his sin, and nothing to do with the sin of his parents. Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in his life. The purpose of this man's blindness was to display the glory of God. The word displayed that we see in verse 3 comes from a Greek word that means to reveal It means to to make clear. It means to cause to see or to cause to know. And so we see that God uses something totally mundane like blindness to reveal the glory of God. This story teaches that God uses a blind beggar to reveal his glory. That is to say, God displays his glory in the mundane. Notice number two. The second observation is that Jesus disposes his disciples to the truth. Now, listen to this reasoning. Whenever something happens, whenever something happens, in this case, blindness, there are only three options. You say, why was the man born blind? There are only three possible reasons that he was born blind, not to mention any other occurrence. Number one, Number one, it happened by chance. It happened by chance. There's a second reason he may have been born blind. God permitted it. That is to say, God allowed it. The third reason is that God decreed it. So there are the three reasons. Anytime anytime something happens in life and you say, why did that happen? It either happened by chance... It happened because God permitted it or it happened because God decreed it. Let's have some fun. Is it okay if we have some fun for a few minutes? Let's think about option number one. That the man was born blind by chance. Did you know that whenever you tell someone good luck, that you give lip service to chance? Think about that. By the way, this is another worldview issue. Just as the the teaching of karma has been imported into Christian worldviews and Christian churches, the notion of luck has also been imported into our worldviews and into our vocabularies. And we use it all the time, don't we? Good luck. Good luck. But when we do that, we give lip service to chance. And so let's have some fun here for a minute. Let's do what St. Augustine used to call a thought experiment. Anyone with me? Just a brief thought experiment. Anyone? You can raise your hands. How many of you are scared? <laughs> okay. It's going to be great. What I want you to do, just for about 10 seconds, I want you to think about nothing. This is not funny, Spud. And Galen behind you, he's laughing too. I want you to think <laughs> Thanks for ruining a perfectly good illustration. I'm just kidding. Let's do it together. Let's, as the body of Christ, let's think about nothing. Now think about this after you're done thinking about nothing. Chance, chance simply lacks the power to do anything. Chance is Nothing. If you think about the word nothing, I thought about displaying it on the screen. N-O-T-H-I-N-G. Let's break that word up. Chance, if you will remember this, is no thing. That is to say, chance is non-existent. Chance does not have the power of being. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Nothing cannot do, help me, something. And that's why, when I say, let's do a thought experiment, think about nothing, you all laugh because you know you can't do it. Spud, you can't do it either. We can't think about nothing. It, it doesn't exist. It doesn't have the power of being. Chance is nothing. Chance is no thing. Therefore, there is, and I hope this encourages you, because I know many of us have have difficult things that have transpired in our lives, Chance is no thing. Therefore, there is no chance in God's economy. There is no chance in God's economy. To grant chance the power to do anything would lead us to believe that it could do something. And we've just agreed together that we can't even conceive of it in our minds. We can't meditate on it. Here's what the Word of God says. The lot is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. And so you recall that we're asking, what are the reasons this man was born blind? And what are the reasons that anything happens at all? The three options are, one, chance. Two, God permitted it. Three, God decreed it. So we have, I hope, eliminated option number one. Collectively. We're left with two options. God permitted it. God decreed it. Here's what many Christians are fond of doing. They say, especially in a difficult scenario. I think you would agree that John chapter 9, a man being born blind, that's rough. That's difficult. They say, well, God, He just permitted it. That is to say, I think this is what some people think. It happened outside the scope of His sovereignty. He permitted it. But Jonathan Edwards helps us in a magnanimous way at this point. He says that, what God permits, God decrees to permit. I will never forget the first time I read that sentence. Check, please. Right? It's a worldview shaker. Because you can, you can say all you want, well, God just permitted it. And I would say, to be fair, in John chapter 9, that's true. God permitted this man to be born blind. However, if Edwards is right, and I believe he is, whatever God permits, he decrees to permit. Exodus chapter 4, this is the verse that we might tend to skim over in our personal devotions. It says this Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In the book of Isaiah, God says that my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so what Jesus is doing effectively here with the disciples is he's teaching a theological lesson through the back door. He teaches a lesson through the back door. And the lesson is this. Listen, disciples... God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over all things, including blindness. And here's the beautiful reality, and that is that God's glory is displayed in this man's blindness. God's glory is displayed in the mundane, in the normal, everyday things of life. There's a third observation I would like to make, and that is in verses 4 and 5, Jesus directs His disciples Godward. He directs His disciples Godward. He says in verse 4, We must work the works of Him, that is God the Father, who sent me, that is God the Son, while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And I simply want to make this point briefly. That Jesus puts the responsibility now on the disciples to display the works of God. You see, there's an urgency attached to the words of Jesus. You have a responsibility in the everyday, ordinary things of life to display the glory of God. In the everyday humdrum of life... And there's an urgency attached to this. He stresses the need to display the glory of God for, as he says, night is coming when no one can work. And so the man in this story, the blind beggar, displays the glory of God in the mundane. I want to ask this question by way of practical application. How can we do it? How can you do it this week? That is to say, how can each of us display the glory of God in the mundane. We're going to move from the abstract to the very, very practical. There's several ways that we can do this. First, we can display the glory of God through good deeds and sacrificial service. John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, "...by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." I can say that Dreen, my wife, has a few friends who received some help this week in planning a party for my daughter and her graduation. And this handful of friends has systematically displayed the glory of God through acts of kindness, through good deeds, and God then receives the glory. I want to thank those friends, those handful of friends, publicly for encouraging my wife and my family and my daughter. There's a second way that we display the glory of God in the mundane. Is we display the glory of God by loving one another. Of course, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, that's the kind of thing that doesn't make the bulletin. That's the kind of thing that doesn't make the Herald. That's the kind of thing that doesn't make the New York Times typically is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl just loves another person. One of my dear friends shared just yesterday how he reached out to a person he didn't even know. And he just loved him. Well, guess what? The glory of God was revealed at a fast food restaurant. Through a simple act of service. There's another way we can reveal God's glory, and that is by proclamation. Proclamation. We reveal the glory of God by proclaiming it. Yet another person at Christ Fellowship, do you see a pattern here? Something's happening here. Someone came up to me maybe half an hour ago and said, I had a wonderful conversation with someone, and I'm sharing the gospel, and I think this person may be open. Wow. We've been talking about this, haven't we, at Christ Fellowship. is The key is we open our mouths and we begin to proclaim about the excellencies of a sovereign Savior by using words like, do you know the God of the universe? Have you ever read the Bible? Do you own a Bible? Have you ever thought... And contemplated the works of God. And have you ever wondered this? Are the works of God the, a manifestation of the glory of Almighty God? So we display the glory of God by proclaiming it. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-25. Paul says this, But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, there are so many ways we can display the glory of God in the mundane, but let me give you, uh, let me give you just one more. We display the glory of God by living the gospel in our community we display the glory of God by living out the claims of the gospel in our community 1 John 4 9 says in this the love of God was made manifest among us by the way that's the same word that occurs in John chapter 9 verse 3 where we see that the works of God might be displayed or manifest in him same Greek word In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, we display the glory of God in the mundane. We we display the glory of God through sports. I got thinking about our high school students and junior high school students. We have students at Christ Fellowship who, and I'm going to miss one or two, so please give me mercy. Students who display the glory of God on the football field. And on the tennis court, on the soccer field, the baseball field, and the softball field, they display the glory of God on chess team. They display the glory of God through academia. And it's not a showy thing, but they they merely display the glory of God. They don't need to do like Kurt Warner did when he won the Super Bowl for the St. Louis Rams and say, thank you, Jesus, although it was very cool. But that's not what we're calling for. We're calling for Simply displaying the glory of God. So when you're a batter and you get a called strike, instead of arguing with the umpire, you put your bat down and go sit back in the dugout and you display the glory of God on the baseball field. We display the glory of God on the guitar, on the drums, on a keyboard, on a violin, or any other musical instrument. We display the glory of God in our homes. We display the glory of God in the little things. Now, you know I make a big deal about theology, and rightly so. I will continue to until the day I die. But you don't need a theological degree to display the glory of God. We simply live to the glory of God. We write to the glory of God. We read to the glory of God. We drive our cars to the glory of God. We love people to the glory of God. And we all fall short all along the way. And so we run back to the cross and repent when we fail to glorify the God of the universe. So we've seen that God's glory is displayed in the mundane. I want you to look at the second primary way this passage teaches that God's glory is displayed. The second way that God's glory is displayed is in the miraculous. Now, you talk about a story of contrast. We are moving from the blind man displaying the glory of God to the glory of God displayed in the miraculous. Notice what happens in verse 6. I don't know if you, you saw this yet, but the story in verse 6 takes a twist and it gets very, very interesting really quick. So, Jesus has whittled down, if you will, the worldview of His disciples. They, they didn't understand why this man was born blind. Notice what He does next. Jesus, and every junior hire, should love this verse. He spit on the ground that is worth memorizing. Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. So he 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 bends down. He had just admonished his disciples. Your your worldview needs a shakeup, guys. It wasn't this man that sinned or his mom and dad that sinned. He was born blind to display the glory of the triune God. And he he bends down and he, and I'm not going to spit. I know you're all wondering if I'm going to do it. And I know Ken Olson's thinking, come on, do it. But he bends down and he spits in the dirt and he, he makes this muddy mixture and he goes up and he puts it on the man's eyes. Now think for a minute about the disciples who like you and me wrestle with unbelief. I don't know about you, but it's not fun to be admonished. Because in verse 3 Jesus said, "You guys theology, you need to go back to theology 101. You you've got it wrong." So, they might have been a little little wounded. Maybe a little hurt because they blew it. Now, Jesus is spitting in the dirt and putting mud on the guy's eyes. I can imagine the disciples are going, Hey, psst. He's doing doing something weird again. He just spit. What's going on here? So these guys are wrestling with unbelief. Jesus puts mud on the guy's eyes, and then he gives him a command. We'll look at it in a moment. He says, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed, as verse 7 says, and came back seen. Let me ask you this. Is there anything more mundane than dirt? And so we see this amazing, I was so struck with this this week. We see this amazing mixture of the mundane dirt. With the miraculous. And God's glory is displayed in the mundane. And his glory is displayed miraculously in the miracles that he performs. Now, please don't miss the point of this miracle. The text says, he came back seen. Do you have an imagination this morning? If you were born blind... And the Nazarene came and spit in the dirt. And you heard, all you could hear was, That's all he heard. And he probably didn't hear the mixture being formed in the Son of Man's hands. And the next thing he knew, this saliva-infested dirt was on his eyes. And he's kind of like, what's happening here? And Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam. And the man went to the pool of Siloam, and the text says he came back seen. This is where our imaginations need to take root. I can't speak for you, but if it were me, and the Nazarene came and spit in the dirt and put the mud on my eyes, and he sent me to the pool, and I went to the pool, and I washed in the pool, and my eyes opened, and I saw the pool for the first time, and I saw the crowd going, and i came back this is what we don't see in the text are you ready Whoa! this is big this guy had been blind his whole life and so read between the lines here he he came back seen this is a miracle of epic proportions And it displays the glory of God. I want to make two observations as we come to a close. Notice in verses 6 and 7 that the man, the blind beggar, he obeyed a simple command. Again, Jesus told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Here he is. He's blind. All he hears is... The feet on the, the the sandals in the dirt, and he hears, "Go and wash in the pool of Siloam." Now, the words "go" and the word translated "wash" in the English translation comes from two Greek words that are both written in the imperative mood, and this is very important because Jesus is not saying, "Hey, when you get a chance, Mister Blind Beggar, go down and." jump in the pool and see what happens. No, he's saying, as the second member of the Godhead, the incarnate God, go, wash, this is my command. That is to say, Jesus is not making a suggestion. He tells the blind beggar, go and do it now. And the Bible says, he went and washed and came back seen. I want to apply this to our hearts and our minds today. And the thought struck me that in the evangelical world and in our culture in general, we have become very adept at ignoring simple commands. We're getting very good at it. I was in a meeting with a a young believer not too many weeks ago, and we were talking about a, a controversial theological matter that we'll leave for another time. And I simply had my friend read about five sentences in the New Testament. And then I asked him an important question. What does the Bible say about this subject? And he answered correctly. And the way that he answered correctly, probably eight out of ten believers in good, solid churches would have answered the opposite. I was so proud of him. But we, as I said earlier, become adept at ignoring simple commands. You say, what are the simple commands? How about Acts sixteen thirty one? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Yeah, but you don't understand. That was 2,000 years ago. Yeah, but prove it to me, pastor. Yeah, but Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus says, turn from your sin. Wait a minute, that was a different time, that was a different place. We're, we're relevant in this culture. That was, that was a long time. No, Jesus says, turn from your sin. Here's a big one, and I hope this has massive practical implication for Christ's fellowship. Here's the command, not a suggestion. Be baptized. Be baptized. And we state over and over and over again that baptism is not necessary for salvation. Because we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the word alone, alone, to God alone be the glory. So to add baptism as a requirement for salvation, which some of our friends, even in this community, believe is a horrible doctrinal error. Baptism is not required for salvation. It's called baptismal regeneration. Charles Haddon Spurgeon fought it all of his adult life as he pastored in London. And I will continue to fight that doctrine of baptismal regeneration as your pastor. And I hope you will join with me. However, baptism is a command. It is a command. I would urge you, I would plead with you. If you trusted Christ last week or last month or last year or 30 years ago and you have yet to be baptized properly and biblically by immersion, I would challenge you to consider the imperative to be baptized. I want you to notice the second observation that emerges in verses 8 to 12. We've already seen that Jesus confronted the worldview of the disciples. Now he's going to take on the crowd. And I want you to see that the worldview of the crowd is exposed. And I had to discipline myself here because there are many worldviews that I I consider that they may have embraced. But I think the main one the crowd embraces here that we'll see is skepticism. The worldview known as skepticism. Read it with me. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying. And by the way, I imagine the man hooting and hollering and dancing and, man, let's have a party. I can see. We don't know if he had children. We don't know if he had a wife. We don't know if his family is nearby. We don't even know if he had friends. Maybe he was friendless as a beggar. But he sees people for the first time. He's so excited. And the crowd, is this not the man who used to sit and beg and someone said, it is he? I'm like, wake up. Yeah, it's him. He's the guy that you've walked by time and time again. Others said, no, but he is like him. And this is my favorite. He's just like, I'm the man. I'm the man, right? And they're just like, I don't know. Is he the man? Some said yes. Some said no. And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said, go to the pool and wash. And so I went and recovered my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he says, I have no idea. One writer says that skeptics claim that no one can know anything. Can I just take a pause for a moment and say, I, we have many skeptics in our culture and in Whatcom County, I Love it when people tell me that. Some of you have already heard me talk about this. (laughs) Many Christians, they, well, I don't know. How how do you argue with a skeptic? When someone says, you can't know anything beyond a measure of uh, doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, you just can't. All you have to do is ask them, do you really believe that? What do you think they'll say? Well, of course they believe it. Then you say, That statement, my friend, is self-refuting. Take it back to the drawing board. Because for someone to say you can't know anything means they don't know if their assertion is true. It's self-refuting. They say that no proposition is true. Therefore, by definition, their proposition is not true. They don't believe that the miracle occurred. These people, the the crowd, they are card-carrying skeptics like many people that we rub shoulders with every day. And at the end of the day, the worldview that Jesus exposes is simply unbelief. They fail to find their satisfaction with all that God is for them in Christ. And as I've said many times, our culture is certainly no different. And so pose this question, how do people today, right here in 2015, right here in Everson, Nooksack, Sumas, Linden, and Bellingham, moving in concentric circles out to Seattle and Washington and and our American brothers and sisters, how do these people miss the glory of God in both the mundane and the miraculous? Let me give just a few examples. Young people are going to love this first one because... Most of them have seen it ever since they've been in about seventh grade. One way people miss the glory of God is when scientists promote the theory of evolution. And there was a day, and if I'm honest, it still occurs even to this day, when someone promotes the theory of evolution, it it just makes me mad. There's something about it, right? But instead of... Getting angry, let me encourage you to think this. My professor, my teacher who just promoted the theory of evolution, he or she is missing something magnanimous. They are missing the glory of God where we know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We know as Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He he created the cosmos and he upholds it by the word of his power and we worship the living God. My professor and my teacher misses it. They fail to see the glory of God. There's a second way people miss the glory of God. Our atheist friends miss the glory of God when they reject the Creator. Thomas Nagel famously said, It it isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally, I hope I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's a very honest statement. In his book, The God Delusion, Dr. Richard Dawkins refers to God as petty unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, vindictive, a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a homophobe, a racist, sadomasochistic, and a capriciously malevolent bully. Now, if that doesn't make the the hair on the back of your neck stand up just a little bit, like, come on, bring it on, buddy, then you probably need to think through it a little bit. But instead of getting angry, could we have the same perspective with the evolutionary professor or teacher and say, Dr. Dawkins, you're missing the most beautiful reality in all the cosmos. You're missing the glory of God. There's a third way people fail to see the glory of God, and that is by failing to honor God in creation. You say, Where does that happen? Well, Turn on the evening news and watch the weatherman. Miss the glory of God when the weatherman or the weather woman attributes the weather to Mother Nature. Have you heard that one? And my mom and dad are here today. And I remember my—I don't know if my dad does—I remember exactly where I was. I was in front of Northurston High School. We were driving down the road, and and my dad had a conversation with me about Mother Nature not existing, right? And there's another worldview matter that we have imported into our vocabulary. Why do we talk about Mother Nature instead of the triune God who created all things? And so we miss the glory of God, and we give credit to Mother Nature instead of God. Number four, unbelievers miss the glory of God when they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, Romans chapter 1 tells us. But here's the big one. This is the, the biggie. That every person who fails to receive the gift of salvation that Jesus provided on the cross misses The glory of God. Here's the truth point this morning. This is the the piece I want to leave with you that will be in your memory bank for a long time and be in your heart. And that is this, that God displays his glory in both the mundane and the miraculous. And here's the the amazing reality of this passage. that just jumped out to me. I, I have read this passage, I don't know how many times over the last... 40 plus years, this is what jumped out to me. The disciples missed the boat by failing to see the glory of God in the mundane. And the crowd, likewise, missed the boat because they failed to see see the glory of God in the miraculous. And here's the amazing thing. The only one who gets it right The only one who doesn't miss the boat is that blind guy who people have walked past week after week after week. He's the only one in this story who manifests authentic faith. And so as we close, I want to give five components that I see of authentic faith. And I I pray that you would be challenged by it as you walk with the Lord. The first component of authentic faith I see in this blind beggar, now a beggar who can see, is an uncritical faith. An uncritical faith. You see, we don't hear the beggar questioning Jesus. Why? When? How much? Let me go bury my father, like some of the other stories we've learned about in the gospel. We don't hear excuses from the beggar. We don't hear the beggar asking for any clarification, like, where's the pool of Siloam? Remember, Think about this. He's blind. And Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam. Right? Are you with me? No questions. However he got there, he figured it out. An uncritical faith. Second, authentic faith is an obedient faith. It's an obedient faith. When Jesus told the man, go, wash, he went to the pool of Siloam immediately. Number three, we see this man had a hopeful faith. He had a hopeful faith. He went to the pool of Siloam expectantly, waiting for something good to happen. And we know that he saw the works of God, which is, see, which is to see the glory of God displayed in his life. Number four, I see a humble faith here. A humble faith. There is no spirit of entitlement here with the blind beggar. The man knows as I hope we know, that none of us deserve the love of God. None of us deserve the mercy of God. I can't tell you the conversations I've had over the years with Christians who tell me that God owes me mercy. Listen, when you come to the place where you say God owes you mercy, you have forgotten that by nature and by definition, mercy is is non-obligatory. By definition, mercy is non-obligatory. And so, we don't see that spirit of entitlement here with the man. We see a, a humble faith. He knows he doesn't deserve a miracle, but he receives it humbly and graciously. Finally, notice, and perhaps most profound, we see a simple faith displayed in the blind beggar. He didn't do anything special, He didn't have any degrees. He didn't have any experience. He was a simple beggar who believed God. The Bible tells us when we believe God, he credits to us as righteousness. And so I would say here that the failure of the disciples to see the glory of God was only a temporary setback. But I want to ask this. What are the consequences for missing the boat and failing to see the glory of God displayed in the mundane and the miraculous in an ultimate sense? Because we all have friends. We all have friends who say, not interested. I don't want to see the glory of God in the mundane or the glory of God in the miraculous. Here's the encouragement that we can give to them. To our friends, you will miss The joy of God's presence. If you miss the glory of God, you'll miss the joy of His presence. You will miss out on a a joy of the relationship you could have between the God of the universe and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will miss out on the thrill of having your sins forgiven. If we all remembered how beautiful it is to wake up in the morning and know my sins are forgiven? That if Jesus returned today we would not be faced with 10,000 degrees of white-hot fury? You know that all of our friends who fail to see and savor the glory of God will one day face 10,000 degrees of white-hot wrath from an infinite, holy God? If we miss the glory of God, we will miss the hope of heaven. John Piper says it this way, the Christian gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. Because its final aim is that we would see and savor and show the glory of Christ. For this is none other than the glory of God. He is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is the image of the invisible God. When the light of the gospel shines in our hearts, it is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus And when we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that hope is our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. My question today, my friends, is this. Will you be like the crowd who misses the glory of God and the miraculous? Or will you be like the disciples who miss the glory of God and the mundane? Or will you be like a lowly, blind man, Beggar who had christ's exalting faith as he rejoiced in the glory of God over the last year, I have spent a fair amount of time studying one of my heroes, the man who is singularly responsible for the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation that we will celebrate in just over a year from now, October 31st, 1517, the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. Is there anyone smiling with me? Unbelievable. And so that man, as you well know, is Martin Luther. On his deathbed, Luther uttered his final words, which were, We are beggars. This is how we live and this is how we study so that God gets the glory and we get the grace. My hope and prayer today is that you would get the glory. That you would get the grace. That you would be satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. That you would see the glory of God in the mundane. That you would see the glory of God in the miraculous. But you would do more than see the glory of God. You would savor God's glory. And ultimately the place where God's glory shines the brightest is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where justice and mercy kiss, where God displays his glory as God the Son bears the weight of sin for everyone who would ever believe. I want to invite you this morning to run to the cross and behold the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the lessons of John 9. The lessons we learned from the disciples, the lessons we learned from the crowd, but most importantly, the lessons that we learned from your son, the Lord Jesus. God, we thank you that you delight in displaying your glory, both in the mundane and the miraculous. God, I pray that you would help us as your people to get comfortable in celebrating the glory of God in the mundane. For as one person I said or heard many years ago said that God primarily works in the realm of the ordinary, not the extraordinary. God, help us to get comfortable with that. To be excited when miracles transpire, but to be equally excited when your glory is displayed. And a young person uh, demonstrating good behavior on the football field. And a young person who who talks respectfully to his teacher or his principal. God, in a person who uh, honors his or her employer, may the glory of God shine forth from the members of this church so that people would see and savor that great glory. That is the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.